Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 6, and we'll be chipping away through the section that uh, we started last week. It's a section where Jesus is emphasizing the golden rule, the need that we have to treat others in the same way that um, we want to be treated. And so there's this uh, overarching theme throughout the section, verses 27 on down, uh, where Jesus is trying to emphasize proper Christian attitudes in a fallen world. Uh, because uh, the people he's teaching, and just like the people today, oftentimes are, are no different than the world. Believers become no different than the world, and, and this isn't right. Uh, Christianity should change us and make us different. Ten years after Corey Ten Boom was released from the Nazi concentration camp in Ravensbrück, where many suffered horribly, were tortured and killed, including her own sister... She ran into a lady who would not look her in the eyes. And she began to think about this lady and why she acted so strangely around her. She began to inquire about the woman and discovered she was one of the cruel nurses who participated in the torture and death of her sister Betsy. Now, when she was told about the identity of this woman, she was immediately filled with anger and rage. Realizing, though, that her heart was overflowing with hatred towards this woman, she cried out to the Lord and in her own words said, Forgive me, forgive my hatred, O Lord, teach me to love my enemies. And she described how at that very moment, She just felt all of her rage being displaced by divine love that she couldn't explain. And she began to pray for the woman regularly. And shortly thereafter, she called the hospital where the nurse worked and invited her to a meeting that she was speaking at. What? replied the nurse. Do you want me to come? Yes, that is why I called you. Then I'll come, said the nurse. And that evening, the nurse listened carefully to Corey's speech. And afterward, Corey sat down with her and opened her Bible and explained 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. The woman seemed to thirst for Corey's quiet, confident words about God's love for us, his enemies. And that night, a former captive led her former captor to a decision that made the angel sing. Love of friends, says Tertullian, is common to all men. The love of enemies is a virtue peculiar to Christians only. You can look at all the religions of the world, you can study all the philosophies of the world, but Christianity alone teaches this otherworldly standard of loving even your enemies. And last week we started to examine Luke 6, verses 27 through 31, which is the first part of this whole section where Jesus, after explaining the Beatitudes and the woes, then begins to give eight examples of what it means for us to apply the golden rule to different areas of life. 
If you remember, he talked about these beatitudes, um, these blessings that come upon people who have God's saving grace working in their life. And the last one he mentioned was, blessed are you when men persecute you and say all manner of evil uh, against you uh, falsely on account of me. He explains how there are times when the world hates Christians and persecutes Christians just for being godly and Christ-like. Then he goes down to explain the woes on those who don't know Christ and then goes back at the beginning of verse 27 and says, but I say to you who hear. The word but means he's switching back to the category of Christian and specifically persecuted Christian. And now he's going to explain how to live a God honoring life in the face of various things that come upon you as a Christian in the world as you live a godly life and the world hates you for it. And he is describing these things to you who hear, not you who are here. But you who have spiritual understanding, spiritual discernment, you who have the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit working in your life to help you not only understand, but to apply the word and live the word and be changed by it. And we also learn that Jesus using hyperbole. Hyperbole is an extreme statement. It's when you purposely exaggerate in order to make a point. You know, you leave your back door open, a couple flies come in, and you know, you tell your wife, there's flies everywhere, and there's two. (laughs) That would be a very hyperbolic statement. But the point is, is Jesus is using hyperbole here to drive home some important points. And really, it's just one big point applied to a bunch of different areas. And so keep that in mind. Each one of these areas is just one particular way Jesus is letting us know of how to live a godly life in a wicked and perverse world. We also made uh, mention of this important fact also that Jesus is not overturning the law. And I want to stress that because many commentators, when you read um, their comments about here, say, well, Jesus is overthrowing the law of Moses here. No, he's not. And we're going to explain this more later. Jesus came as a man born under the law. He came to uphold the law, live the law, teach the law, and even said, if anyone doesn't teach the law and teach others to obey it, it'd be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be cast into the sea. So Jesus is upholding the law. And so when we go through this, you need to realize that if you if you read a, a text like this and you think, oh, well, that's contradicting the Old Testament law, you're just interpreting it wrong. Because Jesus, who is God incarnate, the very word of God made flesh, is not going to contradict the word that he inspired in the Old Testament. He's not improving upon the already perfect law of Moses. So keep that in mind. He is teaching Jews how to obey the law of Moses. So the overarching principle is the golden rule. Treat others in the same way you want others to treat you. And so if you have your Bible, look down at Luke 6 and follow along as I read verses 27 through 36. Jesus says, but I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. 
Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your heavenly Father is merciful. All right, we have already looked at the first three in verses 27 and 28, and now we are at the last half of verse 28, where Jesus continues and says, pray for those who mistreat you. The word pray is uh, what is called in, in the middle voice. It's um, uh, in Greek, there's different, there's active and middle and passive. And whenever a middle is used, it emphasizes the whoever's doing it to participate in the action. And the reason is, is face it, when somebody does you harm, you don't feel like praying for them. Well, that doesn't come naturally unless it's an imprecatory prayer where you, you know, Lord, can we command fire to come down out of heaven and consume them? I mean, that comes natural. But um, praying for someone's good, praying for their salvation, usually is not the first thing that comes to mind. But Jesus says you need to cause yourself, you need to make yourself pray for those who mistreat you. The word mistreat is to falsely accuse, insult, treat abusively, uh, despitefully use or take advantage of someone. And like all the other cases in this text, the word mistreat is an active participle. Jesus emphasizing the point. He's talking about if people mistreat you and mistreat you and mistreat you and mistreat you and don't stop mistreating you, you need to make yourself pray for them. Instead of getting angry, instead of getting even and swearing and, and uh, you know trying to attack them back, pray for them, pray for them. And as we know, mistreatment can come in many forms and in many degrees. You know, it can be anywhere from, you know, somebody giving you a mean look all the way up to somebody killing you uh, because you're living a Christ life like of being a martyr like Stephen, who looked up to heaven and prayed for those who were trying to crush his brains out with stones, asking God to forgive them. That is the exact kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. If you've ever studied uh, uh, Peter's epistles, you probably know that the first of Peter's epistles is about suffering. That's the theme of First Peter. And Peter teaches his readers some of the same things that Jesus is teaching in our text. If you look over in First Peter, chapter 1, or actually chapter 2, verse 20, this is what you read. First Peter 2, 20. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Implied answer, of course, is none. But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. It finds favor with God when you suffer for being godly. Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose. Now, just stop there. 
Do you know that Christians are saved for this purpose? Suffering for godliness? Try that next time you're trying to lead somebody to the Lord. Hey, you want to suffer? Do you want to be persecuted? You can be a Christian too and be persecuted too. You have been called, that is called by God unto salvation for the very purpose of suffering for righteousness. He goes on to say, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Not only did Jesus not revile back, not only did he not um, attack them or call fire down from, from heaven on them, he just prayed to the Father and while they were crucifying him, he died for the very ones bearing their sins upon his body to, so that they could be saved while they killed him. And so, of course, he is the ultimate example of what Jesus is teaching here. The first example of this is found in Genesis chapter 4. Turn back there, Genesis 4. This is a story that is familiar to most of us. It's the story of Cain and Abel. You know, sometimes when you live in the world, the world just doesn't like you. You're a Christian and the world hates you. And you can't be surprised at this and think, what is going on? I'm telling you what is going on. Jesus is telling you what is going on. The world hates those who are like Christ because the world is run by Satan and Satan hates Christ. But look at Genesis 4 verse 1. Now the man, that is Adam, had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said to him, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So that always bothers me because I like gardening. (laughs) So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord, uh, the first fruits of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will, your, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother, And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Don't you see that? You see why Cain killed his brother? Cain killed Abel because Abel did what was right and he did what was wrong. You're thinking, well, what's the logic in that? There is no logic. It's just how fallen men who are of their father the devil, treat many times those who live godly in their presence. Cain slew his brother because his brother did what was right. John in 1 John 3 verses 11 and 12 gives us a little commentary. He says, For this message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Here's the reason. Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's it. That's what Jesus is talking about in the last beatitude that we looked at. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And now Jesus is saying, listen, when people mistreat you, don't retaliate in like kind. Pray for these people. They need it. They need your prayers. Now, let me ask you, do you think that when we are glorified in heaven and perfect, that we'll have thoughts of hatred, bitterness and revenge? Well, of course not. Well, God wants us to start living heavenly lives right now here on earth. He wants us to live on earth now as Christians, as ambassadors from heaven. He wants us to be in the world, but not to act like the world. And if you have been a Christian very long, you have had co-workers and relatives and friends and different people persecute you you know you've been denied that job promotion just because people know well he doesn't work on sundays and yeah he's kind of a he's pretty fanatic about his religion so we'll give it to this other guy and when you were ostracized and shunned by family members and when your friends who thought you were great before you became a christian is after you become a christian they start spending less time with you and what's wrong with you you you're you're so weird now you're you're just no fun anymore you're so starchy and stuffy and what they're really saying is is your holiness offends me and when that happens you need to stop you need to think you need to pray and consider that these people need the lord i mean after all why is anyone ungodly because they need the lord And so how are they going to become godly? By coming to know the Lord. And so how are you going to help them come to know the Lord? By acting just like them, an unbeliever? No, by acting like a believer, a follower of God. Like the text says that you would prove to them that you are children of the most high God. And so you should mirror Christ's godliness, not their ungodliness and when they mistreat you pray for them secondly look at verse 29 fifth command whoever hits you on the cheek offer him the other also the word cheek here is literally jawbone you know this isn't some uh english slap in the face with the white glove this is a belt to the jaw you can't see it in the english but jesus actually switches pronouns here from plural to singular. Everything else he's been talking about, you people, you people. Now he says, you individual. And somebody individually hits your face. And notice Jesus doesn't say, well, learn karate and take him out. <laughs> Pull out a sword and stab him. Beat him with the club and show him who's boss. And what's amazing is, is some of the commentators I read actually think that Jesus is somehow overturning the Old Testament law here of lex talionis, which is uh, the principle eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, burn for burn, life for life. It's the purpose or the principle that our whole law system is based off of. And it is often referred to as the law of retaliation, but it's not. Jesus is not overturning the law. 
Jesus being God, the very word of God, wrote the law of Moses. He was born under it and he kept it perfectly and fulfilled all the prophecies concerning himself for his first coming. No, the principle of lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, etc., was something that always had to be applied by judges. Appointed judges. If you looked at the context of Exodus 21-24 or Deuteronomy 19-21, you would find in both of those texts, when it talks about somebody receiving some sort of injury or harm, it says, and then the judges will decide appointing, and then they give eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In other words, Lex Talionis has nothing to do with individuals, It has to do with law courts dealing out judgments for those who bring cases before them. So Jesus is upholding the law. He isn't overturning that principle. He's trying to correct selfish, vindictive attitude of taking out personal vendettas against people. Because they do you harm. I'm going to get you because you got me. I'm going to get you back. I'm going to show you type of that attitude, which is so prevalent among fallen men. Jesus, though, says, no, the proper response to the belt on the jaw is to say, how about the other side? Now, again, he's using hyperbole here, but he's emphasizing an attitude. If somebody hurts you, then you need to Not try to yourself physically stop them from hurting you. Don't seek revenge. Don't seek to punish them out. But he's not saying, you know, let any thug or hoodlum beat you up. Don't, you know, lead into the punch. (laughs) Be mugged for Jesus. He's not saying that. He's using a hyper, hyperbolic statement to say, don't seek revenge. When people are mean to you, and they're going to be mean to you because they're mean to everyone who lives a godly life, don't retaliate in like kind. Keep living a godly life, which means you're what? You're going to be turning the other cheek to him. You're going to, yes, yes, you're going to give him another opportunity to attack you, to be mean to you again and harm you again. When Jesus says offer him the other cheek, the word offer is a present active command, which means keep on offering yourself to those who might, because of your godliness and Christianity, seek to attack you and do you harm. If someone intentiously and repetitiously harms you, don't attack them, don't try to kill them, don't try to get revenge on them. Love them, pray for them, keep your behavior excellent among them. But realize, Jesus isn't saying just open yourself up to hoodlum abuse. John Calvin pointed out that Jesus is not saying just be passive to attackers. He points out that returning evil for evil is, of course, out of the question. But we should actively attempt to overcome evil with good. And he quotes Romans twelve twenty one as an example, which says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that is a very interesting little passage. I, I was looking at it for a while and the phrase don't be overcome with evil is, is, um, is an interesting, it's a passive verb, which says, don't let yourself be passively overcome by evil. Don't let 
evil invade you. Of course, when somebody attacks you and you respond in like kind, what are you doing? You're being overcome by evil, not because they're attacking you, because you are responding in what? Like kind. And so he says, instead, be active and overcome that evil with good. So when they attack you, and they will, then respond in a godly way. Leon Morris points out the same thing and says, remember that even in John chapter 18, verses 22 and 23, where Jesus is being tried unjustly and they slap him on the face, Jesus says, why did you just slap me? What wrong did I do? He defends himself. If you were to turn over to Luke 22, verse 36, see if you've ever heard a verse preached on this or sermon preached on this verse. Luke twenty two thirty six. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, his crucifixion. He's going to be leaving them. And he says this. But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Do you all have your sword? Anything you have to think about that? Go buy a sword. And what's interesting here is your coat was your most valuable possession. I mean, it was the thing that you wore around you to keep you warm at night. He said, be better to freeze at night and have a sword for protection. Of course, Jesus, I think, is using hyperbole here, but the point is clear. I'm going to leave you. I'm not going to be, you know, multiplying fish and bread loaves anymore. I'm not going to be protecting you anymore. I'm not going to be providing for you. You're going to be wandering around. You're going to be preaching the gospel. When you go out there, you need to protect yourself because evil men are going to try and do you harm. So Jesus is not teaching in our text, just be a passive victim just be a passive victim he's not saying that but he is encouraging them to become um just uh careful as they go out not to become a band of thieves and use their swords to rob people and intimidate people but to be prepared to protect themselves from those who might want to do them harm as they go about preaching the gospel now you might be thinking to yourself well what would it look like to overcome evil with good well it could be any number of things we've talked about it you know praying Doing good, being kind, sharing the gospel, attempting to make peace with people um, who don't like you for whatever reason. And if they are breaking the law, it may mean calling the police. You have to realize that restraining evil is a good thing. And so if somebody was doing harm to you or other people and restraining them would be a good thing because it's good to restrain evil. Jesus is not saying, just uh, don't bring the authorities into play here, just be mugged for Jesus. He's not saying that. Romans 13, 3 and 4 says, For rulers are not not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Paul's point in this section is, listen, God assigns government, not individuals, to punish and bring sentence upon evildoers. And that is a good thing, and that's what government's for. 
But it's not your job to take out personal vendettas to be vengeful and angry and to attack people when they do you harm. And if it became, you can imagine, if it became known to the world that Christians, you could just attack Christians, steal from them, plunder from them, take their possessions, and they would never call the police, what would happen? Well, here we'd all be. No possessions, no shoes, no clothes, and we all would have walked to church from the alley. Every Christian would be robbed, blind, and reduced to absolute poverty because the world would instantly take advantage of us. We'd just be a free meal. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, Peter tells us how to overcome evil with good, and he says this. Listen to how Peter's teaching reflects identically what Jesus is teaching in the text before us. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Peter, like Paul, like Jesus says, you do good. You do good. You know, when you're persecuted, submit to the governing authorities. Two, let the governing authorities deal with the wicked people. Three, do right. And hopefully by doing right, you will silence these men. Maybe bring some to Christ. So God gives the government the right and responsibility to restrain evil. And it does to us to a small degree, but we aren't to deal out sentences. But someone might ask this, and this is a more complicated issue what happens if you're living in a country that decides to approve the persecution of christians then what do you do you come back next week no um that just delays the problem well some would say the best thing to do is to just suffer persecution at the hands of wicked government This is hard to argue against since that's what happens in the New Testament. And that is what has happened for thousands and thousands all the way out throughout Christianity. People have suffered at the hand of wicked government. And you can't say, well, that's wrong because it happened in the New Testament. And the New Testament um, doesn't say do everything possibly to escape this. I mean, it happened to Paul. Just read the book of Acts. Others reason from the scriptures even that wicked governments don't fulfill God's assigned role for them, which is true. We just read it from Romans and Peter. And they say that when the government becomes wicked, so wicked that it no longer helps do good and suppresses evil, that it should be overthrown. And of course, this is how we became a nation. Because the early fathers of our country were tired of being oppressed by the British Empire and so they went to war to free themselves from despotism, not to free themselves from government. They wanted government. It wasn't that they were trying to rebel against government, but they wanted a government that promoted good and not oppression. The clear teaching of Scripture advocates submitting, though, even to the most wicked governments. If you do this sometimes, go through the New Testament, look at all the passages like Romans 13 and and the first Peter 2 passage we read, all the passages that talk about government and how Christians start to respond to them. And it always says what? Submit. Submit. 
Well, was Rome a godly government? Was Rome good and fair and just? Hardly. Rome was wicked to the core. And yet every single instruction is submit to that pagan wicked government. Others have decided the best thing to do is flee the country. Flee the country. And I, I know we've all seen pictures on the, the news of big groups of people, you know, crammed on these makeshift boats trying to come over here from Cuba. People in the, you know, the Serbians in the desert all in these huge chained compounds, huge refugee camps. Why? Because they're trying to escape persecution. They're being slaughtered. And so they're running away trying to hide from the persecution that's coming upon them and they'd rather live in a cage in the hot desert than to be back there and die. So they run away from those who are oppressing them. But Jesus' teaching is clear here. Don't take revenge. Don't retaliate when people do you harm. Instead... Offer up the other cheek. And you have to ask yourself, how can you offer up the other cheek if you run away? And why would you run away? I mean, you say, well, Jack, you know, if they were killing people, then, you know, exiting to some other country might be something. But how would you run away in just normal situations? Well, let me give you some examples. Sometimes you run away by getting mad at people, getting angry, getting bitter and writing them out of your life. You ever heard of that happening? I'm never going to speak to you again. I'm moving to Zimbabwe. And I'm not giving you my address or my new email address either. See, that is hiding. And why would you do that? Why would you ever do that? Well, because this person has hurt you. You're angry at them. You're bitter you're vengeful, and so you're going to deny them the wonderful presence of your life by running away to a place that is somewhere where they can't hurt you. That is fleeing, of course. That would not give them the opportunity to do you harm anymore. That would not be turning the other cheek. That would be running away. And this is the fallacy of such thought, is that if you do run away then what's going to happen to wherever you're going? If your godliness brings persecution on you here, and you move there, and you live a godly life, what's going to happen? Persecution there. You're just changing persecutors. Because all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. You have been called for this purpose, is the whole point. And I know there are families who pretend to be all Christians who never speak to each other because they're angry, they're bitter, they're hostile, they're vengeful. This is not the Christian way. This is Satan's way. The Christian way is to attempt to keep the relationship going. And if they want to write you off, fine. That's up to them. But don't let it be from your end. Don't you flee. Don't you run away to Zimbabwe. Because you don't want to give them even a chance to even harm you again and hurt your feelings again. Get your feelings hurt for being godly. 
you know, these people need Jesus, right? And how can you ever be a witness to them if you're gone and out of their life? I have people say things like this. Well, you know, I have a relative so-and-so and, and, you know, they've, they say they're a Christian, but they've done this thing and it really makes me angry, you know. And I'm just thinking, I'm just writing them off. You know, what do you think about that? I think, well, wrong. How are they ever going to come to Christ if you run away from them? How, how can they ever see what's godly if you are unwilling to live a godly life in front of them? Well, if I do this again, then they might hurt me. Yeah. That is exactly what Jesus, that's turning the other cheek. Yeah, leaving yourself open for people to attack you. What did Jesus do when he was here on earth? He went out and he preached the gospel. And what did they do? They persecuted him. So then what did he say? I've, I've had it with you. You stubborn, mean Jews. I'm going back to my woodworking shop and I'm going to make furniture in a dark garage. That'll show you. Or I'm going to go, I'm going to cross the Sahara Desert and I'm going to preach to some godlier pagans over there who I'm sure will like me. What did he do? He just, yeah, he kept preaching and they kept persecuting him and he was turning the other cheek. He was, by living his life in front of them, constantly giving them opportunities to persecute him. And they did. And they killed him. This is not a bad thing. It's foolish to think that by running away, you're going to solve the problem of being persecuted for righteousness sake. That does not solve the problem. People who persecute you are the very ones who need to be around you to see godliness in action. And how can you witness to them in word and deed if you're not there anymore? And I admit that, you know, even to me, there's a desire sometimes. I just wanted like a move up to some nice cozy cabin in some small towns in the mountains of wherever. I could just read good books and write good books and email them down into the big city where publishers could publish them and ungodly people could read them and get fixed. But how many ungodly people go buy books at Christian bookstores? See, that just doesn't work. Jesus wants us to learn to suffer for his sake, to be patient, godly, not running away, not hiding, not shutting people out of our life. Because they do us harm, but to maintain the relationship. And in doing so, we will be giving them an opportunity to hurt us further. It's okay. It's to be expected. It's right. It's the way you witness to people. Third, accept legal oppression. Again, Jesus continues with the sixth example. Look at verse 29. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Now, this is really amazing here. Again, another hyperbolic statement. Jesus is saying, okay, somebody takes away your coat, your outer garment. That's that, um, that's that part of you that, you know, you sleep with. You're, it's kind of like your blankie. You know, I mean, you guys know about your blankie. I still have my blankie. Uh, I have it in the cupboard. My wife doesn't let me snuggle with it anymore, but my, my mom gave it to my wife. And so I've got the blankie. You know, it's like your blankie. And you use that blankie because it keeps you warm. It's, it doesn't fit me anymore. It's very short, but um, it'd be good for my feet. But yeah, you have, you have this coat type thing, this big warm thing that you carry around and you, you, you protects you 
from the elements and you sleep in it. That's your outer garment. That's the coat, the cloak that Jesus is talking about here. But he says, and whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Now, what Jesus is talking about is, listen, there's going to be times when people are going to take your coat and your underwear. They're going to leave you naked. Now, this outer outer garment thing, let me just talk about this a bit, because this is important to understand how extreme Jesus is saying here. In Exodus 22, 26, and 27, the text reads, If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, and you you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else can he sleep in? And it shall come about... That when he cries to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. Listen, people back then had one set of clothing. You know, they didn't go into their walk-in closet and go, Oh, what 500 dresses do I want to wear this morning? And 200 pairs of shoes. And, you know, oh, what is it? No, you go in there and there's nothing there because you're wearing it already. You slept in it. It's your one set of clothing, the outer garment and then your undergarment. And that's it. That's it. Let me explain the concept of a pledge so you understand the significance of this. A pledge is when you give something to somebody to guarantee repayment of whatever you loaned them. For instance, you know, I'm digging my yard, I break my shovel. So I go over to your house and I say, hey, can I borrow your shovel? And you say, well what, well, what will you give me and pledge? Well, here's my outer garment. And you're going, good, because I know I'll get my shovel back because I know he wants to be warm tonight. And so I give you my outer garment, which I'm not going to wear when I'm doing hard manual labor digging. So I give you that. You give me the shovel. I go. I dig all day. But at nighttime, I know it's going to get cold. So I come back and say, hey, here's your shovel. And you say, hey, here's your garment. And so you give me back my cloak, I give you a shovel, and that guarantees, that's what a pledge is. Deuteronomy 24, 12, and 13 says basically the same thing as Exodus 22. Here it's talking about loans, and again, it uses outer garment, a cloak, as an example, because it was such a common thing in that day. It says this, when you make, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not enter his house to take his pledge. In other words, you know, when you say, hey, you know, can I borrow your shovel? Yeah, I'm coming out of your house. I want to look around to see what I want. Okay, that doesn't work. No, you shall remain outside and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. If he is a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. You don't keep it overnight if, he, if he's poor. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Notice cloak is given as just a random example. Why? Because it was such a common pledge. So taking someone's outer garment was a huge deal. Taking someone's outer garment and shirt was a... Huge deal was stripping them naked. But remember, Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's not saying let other people rob you naked. He's talking about 
courts of law. And you say, well, how did you get that? Because I also looked at Matthew chapter 5, verse 40, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the same sermon that Luke is describing here, gives a little bit more detail than Luke and says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. The point is, is there is times as Christians when people using legal means, the law court systems might take stuff that is yours away from you. You might be fined something. And you know what happens when people get really mad at other people. They say, I'm going to sue you for everything you've got. I want your coat and your underwear is what they're saying. You say, well, you can have my old underwear. They say, I want to take you and just use the court systems to bring you to poverty. This is legal oppression sometimes when you are sued for being righteous or godly and you are oppressed for doing what is right. There may be times when you are sued because you're a Christian and you have an unfair judgment against you because you are a Christian. I know a guy one time who had a a company and um, he contracted to do this one project and he was doing the project, but the person he was doing the project for kept making changes and so he kept you know, at his expense, thinking, well, yeah, they're going to pay for these changes they're making. And so they started. And then when he went to pay the, say, yeah, this is how much extra it's going to cost, you know, through this huge job, the company then said, we aren't paying that. That's not what we agreed upon. He said, well, listen, you made all these changes. And they said, well, those changes should come in the agreement. He says, no, that's not right. You know, this cost me all these hours and I had to take out all the stuff because you changed your mind in the middle of the project. And they went to court and the guy lost. And in order to make sure he could continue to pay all of his employees, he sold his house and took all the equity to make sure his employees were paid. And it just, it, he lost his business, but his employees were taken care of and he maintained his testimony. Now that's... It happens sometimes. You know, what do you do? Well, you don't get ungodly. You don't seek revenge. You don't take matters into your own hands. You accept it. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. This is one of the classic texts on this. The author of Hebrews is talking to some people who suffered legal oppression. And he's reminding them of what they had already gone through. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, Hebrews 10, 32, this is what we read. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through the reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves... You have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. What was happening? Well, in the early church, Christians are starting to be persecuted. And 
They were having their property seized and they were being thrown into jail because they were visiting other people in prison who were in prison for preaching the gospel. And all of these things kept happening and happening. And these people joyfully received the seizure of their property. They responded exactly like Jesus is saying here in the text before us. Jesus says if someone takes you to court and wins, you have to give up both your outer and inner garment, then you should do it. You should do it and you should do it in a godly way. Don't rebel against the government because you don't get your stuff. Now he is not saying give way to every wicked scoundrel who wants to take something from you. He's not saying that. How do we know that? Well, in Exodus 22, 2, which is the law of God, the law that Jesus upheld and kept perfectly, it says this. If a thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. In other words, somebody breaks into your house, you get out of club, you club them to death and they die. Protecting you, protecting your family, protecting your possessions, God says, there's no guilt. It's the thief's fault. Jesus isn't overturning this. He's saying if you are taken to court and within the court system, you have judgments made against you and you have to give up your most prized outer garment and even your inner garment and they rob you blind, you accept this. The overarching point though Jesus is making is being kind, be compassionate, be merciful. And that was taught in the Old Testament. I read some commentators who think, well, yeah, being kind and merciful and compassionate to enemies. It was really, really not taught in the old. This is a new thing. No, it's not. For instance, in Exodus 23, 4 and 5, the law says this. If you meet your enemy's ox, now think about this, your enemy's ox, kill it, barbecue it and have it for lunch. <laughs> no. Or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. Like, oh, he can fix his own donkey. You shall surely release it with him. That's help the guy out. Twice he talks about those who hate you. Once he talks about enemies helping their donkey and helping their ox. Do you remember that text in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 9, and it also appears in 1 Timothy five eighteen, where Paul talks about supporting those who labor hard at teaching and preaching. And he quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4, which says, uh, do not muzzle the ox while he is thrashing. Do you remember Paul's reasoning there in 1 Corinthians 9, 9? He says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? His whole point is, listen, you know, I mean, if you have to feed the ox while it's pulling the plow or whatever, while it's thrashing, surely you're going to help somebody who's teaching you the word of God. That's his whole point. His whole point is people are far more important than animals. God's more concerned about people than animals, right? Well, just apply that same reasoning to the text we just read in Exodus 23. God is not concerned about showing compassion and mercy towards people's oxen and donkey only, is he? 
No, he's concerned about showing mercy and compassion towards your enemy. The whole point is your enemy has something against you, hates you, and your enemy has done evil to you. That's how he becomes your enemy, right? And then you have an opportunity to help him with his ox or his donkey. The point is not, well, God wants you to be merciful to oxen. The point is, God wants you to be merciful to your enemy who owns the ox. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't lose your sanctification over the loss of your earthly possession when somebody sues you and takes what is yours. One soul is worth far more than all the riches on the earth, right? Didn't Jesus teach in Matthew 16, 24, what, what would a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Let me ask you this. How much would you give for you soul, your soul of what you have? I mean, you've got two options, okay? You're in this black darkness, this place of eternal torment, suffering day and night forever and ever where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth called the lake of fire. You're there or you can give up all that you have and go to heaven where you will have things that eye has not seen or ear heard or even enter the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And he will bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ for all eternity with perfect happiness and joy unimaginable. Which, what would you give up to go from here to there? <laughs> it's not even, I mean, if you've got a brain, that's not even an issue. Obviously, you would give up all to have heaven and to escape the wrath of God spent eternally in hell. Now, see if you can follow me here. If it is worth everything for you to go to heaven, I mean, if you would give up all you have to go to heaven, what would you give up to see someone else go to heaven? That is the issue that Jesus is driving at here. That is the issue that Jesus is driving at. Is it more important that you lose your earthly goods and maintain your godly witness? Or is it more important that you keep your goods in an ungodly way? It's a no-brainer. Listen, you're not going to keep any of your earthly goods anyways. I just want you to know they can stuff them all in your coffin, but you're not going to enjoy them. They're all going to burn up anyways. How much of your stuff are you going to take with you? Man, use it for good now because it's all going to be burnt up. The elements will melt with intense heat. It'll be over. And so Jesus is saying, don't lose your sanctification. Don't get ungodly and vengeful and bitter over stuff you can't even keep anyways. Instead, maintain your witness. And if they take it from you, hey, you're going to get it all anyways. When you get to heaven, you'll have everything you ever wanted anyways. And you won't be up there thinking, oh, I wish I had my, you know... Warm drive skill saw. (laughs) Jesus, when speaking of the cost of discipleship, said, Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But listen, you're only a testimony, a good testimony, if you do what? Act godly. And if you don't act godly, you're not a good testimony. 
You actually prove to unbelievers that Christianity is nothing more than sanctified hypocrisy and that you give them an opportunity to blaspheme the name of Christ because of your behavior. So Jesus is just trying to say, listen, there's things more important here than you keeping your stuff. If you go to court, somebody sues you, even if the ruling's wrong, and you know, I'm not saying you can't appeal it, but you know, if you go through all the ropes, ropes and it gets to the end where you lose your stuff, then you lose your stuff. Don't get ungodly about it, it's just stuff. Remember, it's more important that you maintain a godly attitude and live in a godly way before unbelievers than that you fight them tooth and nail for things you can't keep anyway. In John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim Progress, Christian and faithful are on their way to the celestial city. Their journey, it describes the journey through life that we have to go through before we get to heaven. And they come upon a city called Vanity Fair, which uh, exemplifies the world that we live in. And Bunyan describes Vanity Fair with these words. Almost 5,000 years ago, there were pilgrims walking to Celestial City. And these two honest persons, and these two honest persons are, and he's talking about Christian and faithful, and Beelzebul and Apollyon and Legion with their companions perceiving by the path that the pilgrims made that their way to the city lay through this town of vanity and they contrived here to set up a fair, a fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity and that it should last all year long. Therefore at this fair are all such merchandises sold as houses and lands and trades and palaces and Honors and preferments and titles and countries and kingdoms and lusts and pleasures and delights of all sorts as harlots and wives and husbands and children and masters and servants and lives and blood and bodies and souls and silver and gold and pearls and precious stone and what not. And moreover at this fair there is at times to be seen jugglings and cheats and games and plays and fools and apes and knaves and rogues and that of every kind. And here are to be seen too and that for nothing, thefts, murders, adulteries, false swears, and that of a blood red color. And then he describes how faithful and Christian are walking along and they're coming up to Vanity Fair. And when they come to this city, the city doesn't like them. It doesn't like them for three primary reasons, because they dress modestly and discreetly. And that angers them. Because they speak kindly and charitably and don't swear and speak vilely. And that makes them more mad at them. And because they won't participate in all the vanities of Vanity Fair, they hate them and they arrest them and they put them in stocks and hang them in a cage for all to jeer at. But even in the cage, they still act godly, which makes them even more angry. And so they take faithful and they try him before Lord hate good. They send three witnesses to make false accusations against faithful, Mr. Envy, Mr. Superstition, and Mr. Pickthank, and they testify against him. And then the jury, comprised of Mr. Blind Man, Mr. No Good, Mr. Malice, Mr. Love Lust, Mr. Live Loose, Mr. Heady, Mr. High Mind, Mr. Enmity, Mr. Liar, Mr. Cruelty, Mr. Hate Light, and Mr. Implacable, find faithful guilty of treason. And they scourge him and they stab him. They tie him to a stake and they burn him to ashes. 
But what happens is, is there's a man in the city and he's watching all of this take place. And his name is Hopeful. And when he sees how graciously and godly Faithful responds to the persecution and mistreatment of Faithful, he gives his life to the Lord and becomes Christian's new traveling companion to the celestial city. And eventually they cross the river of death. And when they get to the city, guess who's there? Faithful. And he doesn't regret one bit anything he had to suffer. And he doesn't regret having to leave some of his earthly things behind. And he receives them as they go into the city. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this text and what we were able to learn from it. Father, I confess that uh, it's so hard to live this way because we are so full of sin and so used to acting in an ungodly way towards persecution and trial on those who do us harm. Help us to not be filled with anger and bitterness and rage and envy and vindictiveness towards those who do us harm. Help us not to give ourselves over to evil and become just like the very things that we hate. Help us to pray for those who mistreat us and not to retaliate in like kind to those who do us harm. And if we have to suffer legal oppression and we lose all of our earthly possessions and maybe even we get charged to be burned at the stake, let us not lose our testimony because people are watching and you use godly behavior, godly words, and godly speech to bring sinners who need salvation to repentance. So, Father, I pray that each of us here would go out into the world and that we would be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, that we would check our own lives and make sure, day by day, moment by moment, that we aren't destroying our witness for selfish reasons, for things destined to perish. But help help us, Father, to love others, to share the gospel with them, and to be kind and good towards them because we know this is what you use to bring sinners to repentance and we pray all this in christ's name amen if you are a visitor and you need to go outside and find our visitor center they have a bunch of great stuff to give you and they would love to greet you if you need somebody to pray with you and minister to you we have counselors over here who would love to do that and tonight we are having a special service, so please come to that. It's at 6 o'clock where we're just going to be enjoying some great music and graduation time and I think some ice cream afterwards. You are dismissed.